Hello, and welcome to the podcast for the Archives of Diseases of Childhood Archimedes section. That's the evidence-based medicine bit of the archives, where we seek to answer real clinical questions using the techniques of evidence-based medicine. That is, clarify the problem, go out and search for information that might answer that, appraise those papers, and then summarise all that information together and put it into a clinical context to say what the reason is that we're doing what we're doing. As many of you will know listening to this, we encourage our readers to submit questions and their evidence-based answers for consideration of publication, and the instructions to authors are on the Archives of Diseases of Childhood website. Along with our clinical cases each month, we also have a little bit about the practice of medicine or the practice of evidence-based medicine, and this month the question is about when do you make something happen? That is, what is the threshold for something to occur? Imagine that you had the ability to get a really impressive multiplex polymerase chain reaction result back to you within two hours of arrival of a hot and grumpy two-month-old patient and that that told you that you didn't have a bacteremia, would you discontinue any antibiotics you'd started? If you would, how sure would you need to be that that multiplex PCR was correct? 95% certain? 98% certain? 99.5% certain. What, if you take it in diagnostic analysis speak, would be your threshold to discontinue antibiotics? Now, the decision of what your threshold would be, that is, above which you will take action perhaps, or below which you will withhold an action, is a combination really of both an emotional component and a rational component. The rational part relies on the idea that you're balancing up the probability of your wrong decision multiplied by the consequences of being wrong against the probability of a right decision multiplied by the consequences in a sense of being right. And this rationality comes from a good understanding of the attributes and good science behind the accuracy of diagnostic or predictive tests, particularly the one that we're talking about in that exact instance. That's what provides the probabilities, but the emotional part comes from assessing what the consequences would be. And weighing those things up, well, I mean, there are scientific ways of doing it in a sense, in that you could look at the utilities using a standard gamble or a time trade-off technique like health economists would use, but, but really they're still emotional. What would it mean if I got this diagnosis wrong? What would it mean in terms of potential adverse consequences if the diagnosis was wrong and I carried on treating. It's those sorts of things you're balancing. Now, there are times when the chance of getting an action wrong is unacceptable. For example, when you're starting cytotoxic chemotherapy for a malignancy, you really do want to be 100% certain that that child had cancer before you did it. And there are other situations where the threshold isn't so tight. Now, in the situation of the multiplex PCR for your hot and bothered two-month-old infant, what would your test threshold be? We'd value hearing your opinions on that, either on the Twitter feed at capitals ADC underscore BMJ, or as a comment on our blog entry, or just as an email to info.adc at bmj.com. We always love to hear from you. Now, 
Onwards to our clinical questions for this month. The first comes from Dr. Belal in Leeds, who sets this scenario of working in a neonatal unit, popping in a cannula. I wonder if anybody's done that before. Yeah, popping in a cannula and fastening on a splint to hold the cannula in place and make it last longer. And then asking the question, well, do splints help increase the functional duration of cannulas in neonates? went off and did some electronic searching in three different databases and came back with just three studies really that could help with that question. Two of them were randomised controlled trials and one of them was an observational study. In the RCTs there were one with 377 different cannulas used and one with 69 cannulas. Now the difficulty with the larger one is that it actually included everyone from neonates right the way up to 12 year olds so was a bit tricky to interpret in relation to the neonatal question and the 69 cannula one was evenly split um, and applied directly to neonates. The observational one was also in neonates looking at 86 neonates of which about half of them were splinted. Of those studies the RCT exclusively in neonates and the observational study suggested that there was no improvement in functional duration if you splinted a neonatal cannula. The very large RCT, including children from neonatal age ranges all the way up to young teenagers really, did suggest that splinting was an improvement, but unfortunately the report couldn't detail whether that improvement was across the ages or specific to the older ages, so difficult to draw any conclusions. You might say, well, putting a splint on, it's no real hassle, why not do it anyway? Why, why bother wondering about it? but there's a potential for problems there. Putting a splint on might obscure the site of the cannula, leading to skin infections creeping in earlier. And with someone very small and delicate like a neonate, the actual pressure of putting the splint on and applying the tapes around it might increase the pressure in the veins, leading to more extravasation. So it's not an unreasonable question to ask. Their clinical bottom line suggests that there is very limited evidence for splint usage and possibly not as easy and straightforward a thing to be thinking about doing as you might have thought. Now, the second report comes from Dr Nguyen and colleagues at the University of Maryland in the USA. Their question also relates to small people, in this case a three-week-old that presents to the emergency department with a perineal abscess but is otherwise afebrile and completely well. The attending doctors there wondered as to whether a lumbar puncture should be part of the septic workup for this very small child. Well, I wasn't sure that this was uh, actually much of an issue, but there was a survey done from 2012 that showed that about half ED paediatricians would do an LP and half wouldn't. So it really is a question that needs an answer. They also went away, having specified their question, looked at three different electronic databases, went through nearly 1,200 different potential articles down to eight relevant ones. They were cohort studies, mainly retrospective and a few case series, including a maximum of 100 afebrile infants. They also noted another little thing that I'll comment on at the end. Of the case series, about 25% of the infants had got LPs and the rest of them were followed up observationally and these were afebrile, well infants who had soft tissue infections. 
in only seven cases in all of those babies was an aseptic pleocytosis noted in the LP and nobody had a bacterial meningitis proved and none of the ones that didn't get LPs actually had a clinical follow-up that suggested their meningitis either. Now there is a little rider on that and that is that they noted that there were three case series of group B strep cellulitis adenitis syndrome and this is also presenting with a soft tissue infection but caused by group B strep and often in the context of somebody that is significantly unwell. Maybe not febrile, but certainly not a well-appearing infant. In these kids, 25% of them or so had a clear meningitis at the time of presentation as proven by lumbar puncture. So their clinical bottom line is that in a well-appearing infant with a soft tissue infection who's afebrile, then there is no need to do an LP but if they're unwell, the example of the, the group B strep adenitis syndrome, then they do need an LP, particularly in that instance. So that's the end of the podcast for this month. Please do not hesitate to tell us what you think of the podcast, what you think of our comedies, and get involved with our conversation on the various social media that we're there on. Until next month, please keep thinking, keep doing your evidence-based questions, and keep sending them in for us. We look forward to hearing from you.